0: This morning, scripture is from Exodus chapter 3, Moses in the burning bush. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro's father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them out of this land into a good and spacious land, the land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So go now. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign that it is you that I have sent. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose they go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your father has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. That is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. This is the word of God.
1: Amen. Well, last week we left the Israelites in our 30 one-week study that's going to carry us all the way through to Advent, our 31-week study right through the Old Testament narratives. It's been a great trip so far. I'm just loving teaching it. Last week, we left Jacob, his sons, heading down to be with Joseph in Egypt as honored guests. At that point, according to the first chapter of Exodus, 70 people. Where David just read for us in Exodus chapter 3 is roughly 200 years later. And something really dramatic has changed. What was a group of honored guests has become a people that have been enslaved and are now crying out to God. 200 silent years. And away from Egypt, in this remote shepherding community on the Sinai Peninsula, We see God crying out to a shepherd who has lived in obscurity for the last 40 years, crying out to him as the solution to what's happening so far away in a very different world, in the central place of power in the civilized world in its day. And God meets a man named Moses. Moses literally means out of the water. If you're new to the Old Testament and you don't know who Moses is, that name says everything. What I want to do today is look through the life of Moses that got him to this point. Then we're going to spend a fair amount of time in chapter 3 and 4 of Exodus exploring this encounter with the great I am. I am who I am, which is the name of God. As God calls Moses to head back for unfinished business in his life, but also unfinished business with what is now a whole nation of people, exceedingly numerous is the description. 200 years later, from 70 people. We're going to look at how God prepares Moses. We're going to look at how God calls Moses. And then we're going to look at what we can learn about it. I see more of our journey, our faith journey in Moses' struggles than in uh, many of the characters in the Old Testament, although we're learning to see it in all of them, aren't we? None of them are really heroes. They're just people like us who need grace. They become significant because of the call and grace of God in their life, just like you and I do today. In particular, I'm going to give you four objections that Moses uses in wrestling with God's call in his life, and I think you're going to find that very relevant to your own experience. Our story really begins in uh, chapter 1. And probably the most important piece to understand Israel, moving from being an honored guest to being enslaved, is verse 8 of chapter 1, which reads, a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. Enough time had gone by that what they revered about Joseph had been lost. And so, this king, doesn't really know, doesn't appreciate, and all he sees are these people that have become a blight. Instead of being a source of blessing, they're taking away much of the resources of the land. And so in order to control them, he enslaves them. But even that doesn't stop them. They still are overproducing. Much too numerous for us is the phrase in verse 9. Why is that happening? Because God said, To Abram, I'm going to build a great nation through you. God's fulfilling his promise, promise is happening in Egypt. A nation is being birthed out of geographically another nation. The conflict is almost inevitable. And so, Pharaoh comes up with this idea that we're going to actually thin them down. We're going to do that by killing all the baby boys that are born. And he starts by talking to two midwives who are Egyptians. And he says, as the baby's being born, if you can tell that it's a boy, he wants it to do a kind of stealth. I don't want them to know that I'm decreeing this because I don't want a rebellion on my hands. So, as they're coming out, if you see that it's a boy, we want you to strangle it, kill it as it's being born. So, it perceives to be stillborn. But Here we see in Scripture one of the first acts of civil disobedience. Both these women, it says they feared God, so they didn't do it. Pharaoh comes to them and says, why have you done this to me? Verse 19, the midwives answered Pharaoh. Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. What they're actually doing is just ignoring Pharaoh. And it says that God blessed them as a result of that. An interesting thing to look at in Scripture is the place of civil disobedience as followers of God. And later on, when Pharaoh realizes it's not working, he does go to a decree. He does go public. And he says, what I want you to do is any boy that's born to Israel, I want them just thrown in the river. I want you to take them from the mom, throw them in the river. What we have here are those that are intentionally disobeying. We're going to see a picture of it in Moses' family. When are we to obey our government, and when are we before God to disobey our government? When when do we say, as the apostles did in the book of Acts, we need to obey God rather than man? And here is the simple formula. When government forbids us to do what God requires us to do, or when government requires us to do what God forbids us to do then we ought to obey God rather than man. Scripture teaches pretty clearly that human authorities are put there by God, that they are under God, and we are to give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Give to God what's God's. And so we are to be good citizens. We are to be obedient. We're not to go off half cocked and say because I don't agree with this political opinion or, or this particular thing that I can, just by virtue of my own philosophical beliefs or my own political beliefs, I can disobey government. That's not what this is saying. It's when clearly we are being forbidden to do what God clearly instructs us to do or when we are being asked to do what God clearly forbids us to do. See what I'm saying? A lot of people use civil disobedience uh, in the name of their own opinion, (laughs) not God's. But there is a time when God's people stand up. History is replete with examples of Christians who could no longer go along with the government and were willing to do whatever it took. It's also replete with people that couldn't make that decision when it was time to do it. One of the sad stories of the church today is the condoning of Hitler's regime by so much of the Christian church. But at the same time, you have those who died in Auschwitz as Christians and the camps who were killed because they couldn't allow the injustice and the mass murder of millions of people to go unchallenged. And so they put their own lives at risk. So you see example of both those Christians who said, I need to obey God rather than man no matter what it costs, and others whose faith was proven to be less than authentic because in the cost-benefit analysis, giving in to evil was safer. So was a little mini-sermon on civil disobedience. We pick up the story now. So Moses, who is not yet named is born to his mother. There's probably all sorts of ways that children are being hidden. Her idea uh, is not so much to hide him, but put him in a place where something good could happen to him. She makes a basket boat, which, by the way, is a very common thing. If that sounds odd to you, still today, uh, there are cultures that use basket weaving with tar pitch to create boats. Just Google it. You'll find it. Google basket boat, not basketball. Don't let it self-correct that. (laughs) Basket boat. This one was baby size, and she put it in the bulrushes, but strategically in the place where Pharaoh's household came to bathe. There were many Pharaoh's daughters, and and where they bathed was known. So she puts the baby at a place where one of the daughters would come across it. Why? Because who doesn't love a baby? And she sees the baby, and she knows what the law says, but knows how do you kill a baby. Even Pharaoh's household didn't agree with Pharaoh's decree. The sister comes up and says, Would you like a a woman to nurse her? I just think when you hear it, it's like they're all in on it. Verse 8. Pharaoh's uh, daughter says, yes, go, she answered. This is chapter 2. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him, and when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. Now, in the ancient culture, a child was deemed weaned somewhere between ages 5 and 8. So chances are, Moses was between five years and eight years old when he was finally brought and presented to this woman, and she adopted him, and she's the one that gave him the name Moses because he came out of the water. So what we see here as a result is that Moses has a very strong identity from his youth with Israel, but he's now in privilege He's in the place of elite authority. He has the best education. He has the best food, the best resources, An elite among men, not just by position, but because of all the things that that position granted him. But then we reach this point, verse 11. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were. Notice that phrase, his own people. He knew, he identified with them. He watched them at their hard labor, so something in him was was brewing. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, glancing this way and that, and seeing no one. He killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. This is an act, deliberate act, premeditated. We see Moses' anger throughout his entire life, by the way. In the end, he falls short of the promised land because of his anger. But that doesn't keep God from using him in very powerful ways. Verse 13, the next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrews? Let's just pause and consider what's happening here. Moses knows the Jewish people are his, but he also knows he's in a position of authority and influence. And he routinely watches the suffering of his people. Perhaps Moses, from the time he was young, had his mother tell him how God had saved him. Similar to the young Jewish princess who was told, who knows that God has not made you queen for such a time as this? Young Esther. And in a similar way, Moses, I think, knows he's in a position. Now 40 years old, he's ready to step up. So he makes his choice, assert himself, begin to appeal and exert his leadership. Unfortunately, he's rejected Verse 14, the man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he would spend the second 40 years of his life. He would marry the daughter of a priest of Midian. By the way, those were distant cousins. The Midians were also descendants of Abraham, worshipers of God. This is where Moses settles. It's interesting. Moses literally lives three different lives. And poetically, each chapter is 40 years long. He's a prince of Egypt for 40 years. He's in hiding now. He's in shame He had been put in a place to make a difference, and he failed miserably, and he's fled. He lived 40 years as a failure, settles into a life of obscurity. The people who knew about the death, including the Pharaoh, die. No one in Egypt even thinks of him anymore. Ever so slowly, the glow of those days diminished as the life he had settled in. Could have been something, This is where I ended up. Being a shepherd isn't bad. It's a noble thing for the right person. But it wasn't for Moses. Let's move on now to this scene where God calls Moses. It's interesting. In the first two chapters, almost 200 years happen. And then two chapters go to a single conversation, a single encounter. We're zooming down in. To see something very important that's happening here, not only for the big story of God, but also for us to learn in our own lives. You know what happens the burning bush, take your shoes off, you're on holy ground, all that to reacquaint Moses with the God that he'd only heard of. When he talked about himself being the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's two centuries ago. That's how long ago it was that they heard that God, not his God. And so God speaks very dramatically, reacquaints him with who he is and all of his holiness and his mystery. Those are some of the things that come out about this God who progressively reveals his character and his person, not only to Moses, but to the children of Israel in the years that would come. But what I want you to wrestle with are four things that I see Moses holding up to God, obstacles to throw in the way, objections To God's call. And the first one is in verse 11. After he says, Come on, I'm going to send you back and tell them that all those years of crying out have not been unheeded and the timing's right, I'm going to use you. Here's the first thing that he says Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Now, it's interesting. I picture a very arrogant Moses at age 40 stepping up, thinking if anyone's in a position to save Israel, it's me. Forty years later, having left all that behind, where is he now? He objects on the basis of his insignificance. Who am I? I'm nobody. I'm a shepherd. Way out here, how can you use me? And what's God's answer? God's answer is, his presence. Go and I will be with you. You see, it's not about who I am that determines whether or not God can use me. It's about God's presence. It's about who he is in our life. But Moses isn't satisfied with that. So he continues. Verse 13, Moses said to God, suppose I, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Now, Moses is being very sarcastic here. Suppose I go to them and say, hey, uh, most of you don't know me. I used to live here. This is my old neighborhood. And while I was out there in the wilderness, the God of your forefathers spoke to me. Doesn't that sound kind of odd after 200 years of silence? And besides that, who do I say you are? What's God's response? Well, let's read a portion of it. Verse 14, God said to him, I am who I am. That's his name. This is what you are to say to Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Then he lays out the whole plan through the rest of this chapter. Everything that's going to happen. So how does God answer Moses' objection of ignorance? I don't know enough for you to use me. God answers it with the revelation of his person and his plan. And what we learn is it's not about what I know. It's about what God purposes to do. That's so important. How many of us, have heard the words of a preacher or read in a book that God has a great purpose for your life and a great plan, and the first thought that comes to your mind is, who am I? And what do I know? I'm ignorant. I don't know enough to be used by God. To you, like Moses, he offers his presence, his person, and he says, I know the plans I have for you, and I'm going to be with you. That's still not enough for Moses. Chapter 4, verse 1, Moses answers, What if they do not believe me or listen to me? And what if they say, The Lord did not appear to you? So I, I think a third objection is my inabilities. I'm not persuasive enough. I'm not capable enough to pull this off. And what's God's response? The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff. And the Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake. God gives Moses several signs, leprosy, water into blood, to say these are all signs that you're going to carry with you. Moses is questioning his own ability to pull this off. What's God responding with? God's own power. God's saying, of course, you're not going to do this in yourself. I'm going to empower you to do it. When God calls you to do something, he always is in it with you, he always knows the plan for you. He always reveals himself in it through you. And it's his power that's at work to accomplish it. That's true for Moses, as it is for us today. But just like for most of us, that's still not enough for Moses. We pick it up in verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, Oh, Lord. I, I, you don't understand. I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. One of the assumptions that we make about Moses is that he was a stutterer. I, I don't know for sure if that's true, but he was not eloquent. He never had a gift for words. To paraphrase, what he's saying is, I don't talk so good. How can you use me? I have an infirmity. I stutter. What is your excuse? What is your infirmity that keeps you from responding and believing that God could use you? Maybe it is a true physical inadequacy or or a mental inadequacy. Maybe it's baggage. Maybe you're emotionally broken. Maybe moral choices you made in your past hang on you weighing you down. You're paralyzed by them. Moral, emotional, physical infirmities. God can't use me. I'll never get past these things. What is it that God says to him? Verse 11 and 12, the Lord said, who gave man his mouth? Who gave you your mouth, Moses? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go And I will help you speak, and I will teach you what to say. God promises his preparation for the journey. You may have inabilities, but I'll prepare you. I'll give you everything you need to accomplish it. In fact, I may use your inabilities better, as Paul would learn in his own life. God's strength is perfected in my weaknesses themselves. These are the arguments that Moses throws to God at the thought of changing his life up around a call of God to make a difference for eternity, to be used in some way that God saw even though you didn't see it. How do you measure up to those? I I feel like we've been there. I used to preach this very text when I was traveling as a youth speaker. I think I was telling Ella on the way to church today that back then I, I really didn't have a lot of patience for Moses because I was still in my first third of life. I was filled with my arrogance and confidence that God was using me. I looked at Moses, and I didn't have any patience with him. I was passionately and recklessly sold out to God. No, I I hadn't hit my first wall yet, that's all. I hadn't tripped over my own self yet, like Moses had. Well, I've done that now. I got patience for him. I got love for him. I see me in him. And you should too. And while you may offer those same arguments to God, when you think about doing something outside of your comfort zone, when you think of rising up from the life into which you settled, you may offer those same arguments to God. He comes against you with those same promises because in the end, there's nothing that can keep God from using you if he calls you. It's not about you, it's about him. We're just the vessel. We see this moment of decision. We see Moses still is teetering on rejection. Verse 13, oh, Lord, please send someone else to do it. Please, Lord. I got no other arguments, but can you just please send somebody else? Lord, here am I. Send Aaron. Aaron. In one sense, God answers that prayer. He does send somebody else. But that doesn't get Moses off the hook. He says, I've got Aaron. He's going to come with you. And here's an important little thing. If you read this, it says, Aaron is already on his way to meet you. So what that tells us is that God's resource to Moses of spiritual community and support and family in Aaron was already planned before Moses reached this point where he needed to hear about it. What that meant was that God knew every objection that Moses was going to make and he had already started things in motion to fulfill his purposes through him anyway, including Aaron. And the beautiful picture we have at the end of this, finally, is Moses making this correct decision. The last verse that we stop today and we'll pick up the story next week is verse 20. So Moses took his wife and sons put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. That little snapshot says so much. First of all, Moses went to Egypt. He said, okay, I'll go. But there's two pieces to this picture that show the full nature of that commitment. He goes with his family, which means he's all in. He doesn't say, I want you to stay here. I'm going to go down and just see how it goes. It might be dangerous for a while, and if it gets hot, I'll I'll need to come back. So you guys stay here. I'm a little fearful. No, he's all in. We're moving back. We don't know what God's going to do, but we're going there completely. We're all in. But probably the most beautiful piece of it is this simple little statement. He took The staff of God in his hand. That staff was the shepherd's staff that had been his probably for 40 years. It was the one that when he was holding it, he used to guide sheep. He used it to direct, protect, discipline stubborn sheep. That's what it did in his hands. God says let go of it. Sends it to the ground. It becomes a snake. And it is that rod that Moses uses over and over again. The second chapter of his life. Why? Because the thing that he'd used for his ordinary life, that very thing, when it got in God's hands, becomes his. It's no longer Moses' rod. It's the rod of God. It represents God's power, God's presence, God's work in his life. See, he didn't just go alone. God never asked you to go anywhere. He's not with you in it. He's not empowering. That he doesn't have a plan. He doesn't know the next steps. And that he's not going to accomplish through you as you obey. Well, that ought to so give us hope. What are some of the things that we can learn from this as, as we look at it? Just a couple things that come to mind. First is how God prepares Moses, 80 years to prepare him, the first two chapters of his life. And what we learn is that God uses everything in Moses' life to prepare him for his purposes. He takes all of the circumstances, every situation, every experience, and weaves it into the mechanism through which he's going to prepare Moses and accomplish his will. There's this really interesting verse in the psalm, Psalm 57. It says, God performs all things for me. He performs all things for me. A similar verse that we're more familiar with is Romans 8.28. God causes all things to work for good for those who love him. And listen to this now in the context of today. For those who love him and are called according to his purposes. I want you to understand that when God calls you, you're able to look back and see how every experience in your life, even the most tragic things, God has turned into something to prepare you for what he has in your life. I love that thought because it means he doesn't waste any of it. And I don't know to what scale it occurs, but I think it's bigger than our own individual experience. Think about this. God used Pharaoh's intent to wipe out a whole generation. You know why killing just the boys of Israel would have, been, would have sufficed? Because the girls could have been easily assimilated into Egyptian culture, taken as wives, servant girls, concubines. They kill off the guys, take that generation of girls in, and Israel dies eventually. It was not just infanticide, it was genocide very smartly done. God even uses that in Moses' life. That's not to say that it wasn't a horrible thing or that it didn't, in fact, affect other peoples. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying even things on that scale, God says, I can use that in him and in her, just like he did in Moses. Tim Keller tells this story. He's the founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan. He is the guy that is teaching my generation how to impact urban centers. A very wise, gifted man, a great visionary. He's a graduate of Gordon-Conwell Seminary. He was at seminary, and he hadn't decided what denomination he wanted to be. And a man came from England who did a two-day seminar, and at the end of that seminar, Keller determined that he wanted to be a Presbyterian and that he wanted to join a Presbyterian movement that was committed to church planting. As a result of that, he ends up planting Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Now, here's what's interesting. How did that speaker from Britain get there? Because he was having all sorts of visa issues. The way he got there, Mike Ford at the time was a student at gordon Conwell. He was able to get this minister over in spite of visa issues. Why was he able to do that? Because his father was the president of the United States. How did Gerald Ford become president of the United States? Because of Watergate. How did Watergate happen? Because some guy pretending to be a plumber left the door open. And so Keller will often tell people he started Redeemer Presbyterian Church because some guy in the Watergate Hotel left the door open. That's true. That's true. We'll often say, I'm here because of Watergate. You know what? I've been strongly influenced by Tim Keller. Part of my burden to plant a church in an urban center came from listening to Tim Keller share that vision and passion. There's an article by Tim Keller on our website that talks about the need for missional churches in urban centers. You know what that means? (laughs) I'm here because of Watergate. (laughs) You know what else that means? You're here because of Watergate. The Lord performs all things for me. God doesn't waste any of it. He even uses those 40 years for Moses. You know what he did in those 40 years? He humbles him. Numbers chapter 12 describes Moses as a meek man. Then it goes on and says, He was meeker than anybody on the face of the earth. Does that sound like the Moses who as a prince of Egypt rose out of his own strength to kill a man? No, that wasn't a meek man. When did Moses become meek? When he learned the life of the shepherd. When he learned the life of the shepherd, he learned humility. God doesn't waste anything. That's lesson one. And I think lesson two is that Moses' third act was his most significant. Now, That's not to say God doesn't use it all. But clearly, when we look at Moses' life, the things that he believed he was doing that was so significant when he was a prince of Egypt, and the life he lived as a shepherd and as a husband and as a father, as significant as they were, all of those things were important. But no doubt he looked back at them now, at this burning bush encounter, and said, now I understand That was all warm-up. His last 40 years were his best 40 years, the ones that he impacted the kingdom the most. There's so many ways that we could apply that today, couldn't we? We could speak to the young generation here and say, yeah, give yourself wholeheartedly to God, but settle in for the long run. Look for God to work through you now, but expect that there'll be a day you look back at even what he's doing now and recognize that it was merely warm-up for something else. And to those of us that are looking at our final third, I'm getting close to looking at that final third. I can honestly say that that principle is true because now I'm able to look back at times when I felt like I was doing the thing God made me to do. When I was a youth pastor, thinking this is what God made me to do. In my 30s doing Raise the Praise, thinking this is what God made me to do. When I was a, a pastor in my last church thinking, this is the place God called me to serve for the rest of my life. All those moments when I thought, this is the thing. This is the thing. They may have been a thing and they may have been significant. I know without a doubt right now I'm doing the most significant work that God's yet to ask me to do. I believe everything else led us to this moment and he hasn't wasted any of it. He hasn't wasted any of it in my life and Vitt's life and he won't waste any of it in your life. You never retire. You're just always getting prepared for the next thing. My dearest, dearest mentor, who I've mentioned in the past, Bob Frederick, in his early life was a senior pastor of arguably the most significant church in the conservative Baptist movement in Denver. He was on the board of the seminary, a mover and a shaker. He came to New England, and he pastored one of the largest churches in New England, First Baptist Church in Portland, Maine. He has been many things. And then, as he retired out of pulpit ministry, he began to mentor other pastors with the wisdom he'd learned. And while others kind of just go quietly off and settle in someplace, Bob began to pour himself into 30 men. Not only that, he founded a ministry that recruited other retiring pastors to do that same thing. And the Bob I knew until the day God took him was thriving, growing, pouring into lives, and probably in those final years doing his most important work because those pastors are still carrying on today and are in turn preparing, myself included, to pour our lives into the next generation of leaders. God's always got the next thing for you, and he wastes nothing in getting you prepared for it. Stop fighting him. Take up his rod. Father, thank you for the encouragement as we see Moses, who struggled in the face of his own failure with God's call, but thank you that he stepped forward, and because of that, not only was Israel free, but we are free because of the Christ who came. Thank you, Father, for that. Give us a boldness. Give us the ability to resign from our objections and to pursue wholeheartedly your call in our life. In Jesus' name, amen.